only a few more days and we'll be ready for Fourth of July. Who's ready for Fourth of July? You're not all. I've been a little worried about Fourth of July for a couple of days now because I'm going to go down to Virginia Beach. And this will be I don't know. Can somebody help with the mic? It's, it's not on. It's only the one on the podium is for the only room. Only the one on the podium oh. will be in the room. Okay. I'm not sure why I'm wearing this one then, but yeah. So, um, yes, this will be my first time going to the beach this year, and uh, I've got a new bathing suit, but I'm just a little worried because it's been a long winter, and I have uh, I've put on a few pounds, so I did a little yoga yesterday, trying to you know, get ready for the beach. One thing I've been doing a lot uh, these past few weeks is Googling uh, effective weight loss programs, and I came across a really stark fact, which is that people living in Venezuela have lost an average of 24 pounds in just one year. In the previous year, they lost an average of 8 pounds, then they lost an average of 24 pounds the next year. So over 30 pounds lost on average uh, for people living in Venezuela. Why is this happening? Because Venezuela adopted socialism and although socialism promised prosperity opportunity wealth a fairer more just society everywhere that socialism has been tried it has led to death and destruction the only equality that socialism brings about is an equality of poverty and an equality of misery and servitude. So the study that identified that uh, people in Venezuela lost this much weight was done by th in conjunction with three universities based in Venezuela, led by the Catholic University of Caracas. And what they've also found is that among the people still living in Venezuela, because everyone who's had the opportunity by now has fled, but those who stayed behind nine out of ten people live in poverty now in the 1970s Venezuela was actually Latin America's wealthiest nation well that is no longer true today so what has happened in in between they had a totalitarian government takeover that uh, promised to bring about a new era of prosperity that was based on communitarian values and socialism. In order to do that, they restricted food imports. They inflated their currency to give handouts to people, but in the process, what they created was hyperinflation. Just to give you a comparison, in the United States today, we have about 2% annual inflation, meaning that a dollar today is worth only 98 cents next year. In Venezuela, they have had over 4,000% inflation in just one year. From the time that your pay shows up in your bank account to the time that you're able to go to the grocery store and buy food for your family, your money has lost significant value. This is why uh, people in Venezuela are starving this is why they are killing their pets, they are killing rodents, and they've even 
engaged in theft of the zoos in Venezuela in order to eat because they're so starved uh, for protein. Now, Bernie Sanders and AOC will tell you that that's not the kind of socialism um, that they mean when they talk about democratic socialism. They're about a different kind of socialism. What they mean is uh, more like the kind of socialism you see in Denmark or in Sweden. Um, and here I have a quote, he says, when I talk about democratic socialism, this is from Bernie Sanders, I'm not looking at Venezuela, I'm not looking at Cuba, I'm looking at countries like Denmark and Sweden. Okay, are Denmark and Sweden socialist countries? Let's have a look at the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, where uh, my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation take a close look at the different economic policies that countries all across the globe have, and then rank them on an economic freedom index. Now, socialism means that the government controls the economy. So socialist economies, you would think, would be economically not very free. That's the whole point of socialism, is to re reduce economic freedom and replace it uh, with government control. So let's take a look at Venezuela first. We know Venezuela is a socialist country. Well, I have to go back a lot of pages to get to Venezuela and our Index of Economic Freedom. Oh, here we are. Among 180 countries ranked, Venezuela ranks 179th. That is socialism. Okay, let's take a look at uh, Denmark. Where is Denmark here? First page, okay? The freest countries are Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand. Then there's a lot of other countries. Finally, we get to United States. United States is ranked 12th. Who wants to take a guess where Denmark is? Just throw out a number. 13th. Pretty close. 14th. Uh, the Netherlands are between the US and Denmark. Denmark is only two ranks below the United States. Do we live in a socialist country? Because Denmark is not a socialist country. Um, Sweden, 19th. Also, not a socialist country. So when uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC refer to these countries, their own representatives will tell you, I was at a dinner with the ambassador of Sweden who said, we are a capitalist country. We are proud of our free enterprise system because it provides our people with prosperity and opportunity. And we're about very wealthy country because we are a capitalist country. Their own people don't even think they live in a socialist country. I don't know why Bernie Sanders thinks they're a socialist country. But, um, I decided to go see for myself. So last April, I actually went to Sweden. That's me at the Grand Hotel, getting ready to go to the spa. Yes, a beautiful view out in the harbor. It's very expensive to live in Sweden. This is uh, in Stockholm, and this was a very nice hotel. It cost about $800 a night. That is not a free hotel. I had to use money convert US dollars to Swedish krona in order to uh, stay at this lovely hotel, which was very lovely, by the way. And the breakfast was $50 the next morning. Um, also not uh, a socialist uh, country. So what do we know about uh, these <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
are a little more aggressive when it comes to protect, protecting private property, private property rights than is the United States. Uh, they exercise less control over free enterprise than the United States. And they distribute a smaller share of national income to workers. Pretty much everything Bernie Sanders seems to believe about Sweden and other Nordic countries happens to be not true. Another thing that's interesting is that their banking sector is actually more concentrated. I also um, saw that for myself. All of these uh, tall, nice white men are uh, bankers, investment bankers uh, in Sweden. They invited me to speak at their uh, renewable energy and infrastructure conference last April. This is why I was in Stockholm and it was these very generous uh, bankers who also paid for my lovely $800 hotel and my $50 breakfast, which I very much appreciated. Uh, to my right, or rather my left, uh, in the picture is Melanie Nakagawa. She uh, worked for the Obama administration in the State Department uh, trying to reduce uh, carbon emissions across uh, the globe. And um, I talked with these bankers, and they also don't think they live in a socialist country. In fact, um, it, the banking sector is thriving and very well uh, in their country. The one thing they complained about is they th said that their taxes were extremely high to the degree that at times it felt like theft, um, but overall they were very happy uh, to be living in Sweden. And on that note, um, the tax system in, in Sweden, is, it's true that they tax their people much more than the United States, but who are they taxing? Because when you look at European countries with generous welfare states, what you find is they are not be able to pay for those welfare states by just taxing the rich. In fact, the United States has a much more progressive income tax system do, than do any European countries. Because the way that Sweden and other countries actually raise their taxes is through consumption taxes on everything everyone buys, which as it turns out, lower income people and middle class people tend to spend a larger share of their income on things. They don't, they're not able to save as much, um, and so they end up paying the brunt of these consumption taxes, which are also called value-added taxes. What's also true is that they have much higher social insurance taxes um, just for an example, in the United States, between Social Security and Medicare, uh, every worker loses about 16 cents of every dollar that they earn. In, uh, in Germany, social insurance taxes, Germany is where I'm originally from, are 28 cents of every dollar that you earn. That is how Europeans pay for their uh, generous welfare states. So when Bernie Sanders says he wants to be more like Sweden, what he's leaving out is that he actually wants to tax the middle class and lower income Americans. You never hear that because all they ever talk about is how they're going to tax the rich. But we've done the math and the proposals of the new wealth tax and the financial transactions tax come nowhere near close enough to paying for the welfare state we already have, let alone for the welfare state that they're promising now, which includes things like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal student loan forgiveness. Those programs alone would more than double the federal budget that we already have, which is already too big. Um, to put that in perspective, over the next 10 years, the federal government will spend about 
$50 trillion. And the programs that Bernie Sanders and AOC are promising, including the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, would cost about $50 trillion over the next 10 years. So they would more than double the federal budget. Now, the tax proposals that they've thrown out would only raise about $300 billion a year, or $3 trillion over 10 years. You see the mismatch? Um, so what would ultimately happen if the American people get duped and sign on to these uh, generous sounding programs is that middle class and lower income Americans will have to part with much more of their money in the form of taxes on the middle class and on lower income workers uh, than, um, than what, what they're currently being told. So keep that in mind. Something else that's interesting about uh, Sweden and many of these European nations is that they don't actually have Medicare for all proposals. In fact, what Sweden has looks closer to what Republicans have been proposing for Medicaid and even um, the healthcare uh, consensus proposal that's floating right now, which is that the federal government would help support the financing of healthcare programs, but the actual administration and management would take place on a state level. Sweden has a decentralized healthcare system that is managed on the state level. So if Bernie Sanders really wanted to have the United States look more like Sweden, when it comes to healthcare, instead of pressing for Medicare for all, he actually should embrace the Republican Medicaid block grant proposal. Um, so once you dig into the details, you find that um, things are very different than they make them out to be. But Many people are becoming enamored with socialism now, and in particular, we find that young people um, are adopting more favorable views towards socialism. Gallup has found in a poll in 2019 that 55% of millennials say they have a favorable view towards socialism. Also, 57% uh, of Democrats say they have a very favorable view of socialism, and about the same number of women are saying they have a favorable view of socialism. But what is it that people think socialism means? The traditional definition of socialism is that the government controls the means and distribution of uh, production. So it owns major industries, it owns um, uh, factories, it owns large uh, sectors of our economy, including healthcare, education, oops, they already own that. Uh, by the way, Sweden has a school choice. So if we wanted to be more like Sweden, we should actually adopt more free market policies uh, when it comes to education. Uh, but what is it that, that people like about socialism? And I think back to when I was in high school. And full disclosure, I thought socialism was cool. I thought that Che Guevara was like the coolest thing you could possibly have on your, on your wall in your room. But I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. It just sounded nice. I like to be social. And um, I was so enamored with socialism that for my high school thesis project, I actually chose to write my thesis on Cuba and the revolution that took place there. And I went into it all enthusiastic, thinking I was going to write about how awesome socialism was and look how well these people are taken care of and everyone's doing well and is healthy. 
and other countries like Germany and the United States should be more like Cuba because those are, you know, evil, greedy, capitalist nations. Well, I dug through primary and secondary sources because I was actually conducting this research in Spanish. It was for my Spanish course. And I found out just how wrong I was. Instead of finding a utopia, the one that I had imagined in my mind, I found that the Cuban people were oppressed, that there was no rule of law, there was only Castro who ruled at his whim, that anybody who dared to disagree with the regime was either imprisoned or killed, that people were fleeing Cuba in droves because it was no place to live. Instead of a wonderful paradise where everyone was taken care of and everyone was equal and justice and fairness for all, what happened was that Cuba destroyed an otherwise flourishing society and created misery and, um, and developed into a totalitarian regime. So as I learned this, I went through a roller coaster of emotions. At first, I was shocked. Shocked by what I found because it was so different from what I had imagined. My second reaction was embarrassment. Embarrassment that I had promoted an ideology that caused so much harm, so much misery for so many people. But in the end, I was relieved. Relieved that I had done the research and that I had learned something and I had opened my mind and I could finally understand what truly mattered and what truly allowed for human flourishing, which is the free enterprise system. But what happens is, and I think this happened for me as well, many people conflate inequality, which is inevitable in a free enterprise system because we are all different, we are all unique. We have different skills and capabilities and attitudes. And some people like to get up really early and work really hard and save lots of money and make wise investments. And other people, they like to sleep in and lie on their couch and maybe do a little bit of work or maybe uh, their parents provide them with an allowance. And they don't uh, work hard, save, and make investments. How could we possibly have the same outcomes? It's, would it be fair if a student works really hard to get an A on that test or on that paper and another student decides to go out and party and gets a C on that test or paper? If the teacher went in the end and said, okay, let's make everyone equal, we'll take all the A's and we'll take all the C's and we'll just give everyone a B. How does that sound? Nobody would work hard and study anymore because the incentives would be misaligned. So inequality is a natural outcome of a free society. Another type of inequality we see is uh, that women, for example, in our society make less than men on average. But when you actually dig into the data, it's not that women are oppressed and victimized, far from that. But what we identify as a gender wage gap is actually a gender choice gap that demonstrates that women have different preferences when it comes to meeting their own needs. Uh, they have different preferences about how much they want to work and how much, they, how much time they want to spend with family. Whether they choose jobs because they're driven by making mo the most money or whether they choose jobs because 
They want to have a fulfilling lives, lives that give meaning uh, to them and to the people they care about. And so when women choose to work in so-called caring industries like nurse, nursing and teaching and childcare and social work, um, and, and the men go off and they work on oil rigs where they get compensated, compensated for high risk, or they go off and do uh, boring jobs where they look at spreadsheets all day in the investment banking sector, there will be a, a pay difference. But when women choose to make the same choices as men, they often end up not just making the same, but actually making more. We now know that um, educated women in urban areas like Washington DC, Atlanta, New York, San Francisco, they make more than their male counterparts um, until they get married and have children when many women choose to take a step back and spend more time with family. And that is a choice that we should respect and it indicates that we live in a free and prosperous society where people are allowed to make those choices. And so inequality is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong or that something is unfair. And what we have a tendency to do is equity, I mean unfairness. And that's what we should be concerning ourselves with. Is our society fair? Does everyone have a fair chance at realizing their version of the American dream? Does everyone have the opportunity to try and realize their full potential? And then the inequality that we see is a direct outcome of different choices uh, that people will make. And that is okay because the only way we can have equal outcomes, like the example where the teacher gives everyone a B, is by overriding what different people accomplish using their unique talents and interests and capabilities enforcing an equal outcome on everyone. For example, by redistribution, by taking from those who earn and invest and are successful and giving to those who, who don't. And that, I think, is unfair in, in the truer sense of that word. So one of the things we did this year is um, we invited Jordan Peterson to join us for an event in New York City, and we asked him what he thought uh, was the reason why people were so enamored um, with socialism. And he said, and I quote, it's easy to understand why people are emotionally drawn to the ideals of socialism because it draws its fundamental motivational source from a raw compassion. We care. We are social animals who care about other people. And that is a good thing. But we need to not only concern ourselves with intentions, we need to also concern ourselves with the outcomes of the policy decisions uh, that we support. And that's where things fall apart. Because caring is not enough. We need to make sure that the policy decisions we make actually work for the people that we say we care so much about. So if you look at the free enterprise system and what it has accomplished, it has cut global poverty in half just since 2000. Global poverty cut in half. It has delivered an abundance of choices and diversity of opportunity like never ever seen before. We live in the wealthiest country in the world in human history. The abundance of of, 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 of things and opportunities that we have at our disposal 
is magnificent, but we're so inundated with it that we take it for granted. Uh, the fact that I have the entire world's information at my fingertips at all times, including when I'm at the highest peak of a mountain, is just um, unbelievable. And we fail to appreciate it. And that was something that Jordan Peterson also talked about, how our minds immediately jump to uh, latching onto bad news. And, and the media taps into that. And they're, they're not telling the story of how everything is becoming better all the time and of how our lives are improving every single day and how the free enterprise system enables human flourishing like no other system in human society. But even though we know all this, we need to recognize that today's battle of ideas is no longer about what is the most efficient economic system to achieve prosperity. The good news is we have won that battle. Even Bernie Sanders and Senator Warren um, and AOC have to admit that the free enterprise system is what generates prosperity. So what they're not, they're usually not talking about wanting to bring about a radical socialist revolution where the government takes over major industries of our economy, though sometimes they do say that, like with Medicare for All, where they specifically would ban all private health insurance. That is a complete takeover of the healthcare sector by the government. But usually what they're referring to is just making tweaks on the margin to make the system more fair and more just. And it's the idea that the government is both omniscient and benevolent, that the people in power will use the levers at their disposal to tweak the economy just a tad bit so it creates just a little more um, uh, a, 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 little, a little more justice or some fairer outcome and we'll just distribute a little bit over here to over there. Uh, but that's never how it works because the political system, first of all, they're just like every one of us here in this room. Politicians don't have some crystal ball that tells them how to manipulate the economy in the most effective way. In fact, entrepreneurs don't even have that. The way that works and this is so complex for the human mind, which is why it's so difficult for people to wrap their heads around how the free enterprise system actually makes our lives better. But the way it works is by using all of the knowledge that's dispersed among all of us and concentrating that in the form of prices to inform all of us every day what goods are scarce, what goods are available in abundance, what do people want and desire, where is the demand, and how can we meet it with the supply and do so at lowest cost? There is no central planner that has all that information that can control all of these aspects of the economy. But the way it works is in civil society, through mutual cooperation, the free enterprise system allows free individuals to, to identify their, their own talents and strength and then make the most use of them with the resources at their disposal to meet the needs of their fellow citizens in the best way and then get rewarded in the form of profits. And then they're able to use those profits and reinvest them to make us even more uh, productive and more prosperous and also to help those who can't help themselves and who occasionally need a hand up. And I think that's where we also need to, to spend more time focusing. One of the things uh, my colleagues in the economics profession, I think, have done wrong in the recent past is that we've only appealed to men's material needs. 
we have inundated people with how the free enterprise system it creates prosperity and wealth and economic growth and makes us all richer. But where we need to focus more on is why the free enterprise system is also the morally just system and how the free enterprise system enables us to meet the needs of everyone in society. So back to the poll that 55% of millennials have a favorable view on socialism. Well, that same group of people, 90%, look favorably upon entrepreneurs. And, and that, those things aren't compatible. And I think that's where we can tap into, because people fundamentally don't understand what socialism really means. They think it's just a fairer, juster way of having a capitalist system. But that's certainly not what it means. So in order to help them understand, I think we can tap into the fact that um, how government regulation and control impedes the ability of entrepreneurs to find solutions both to economic problems but also to social, pro social problems. Um, oftentimes regulation will stand in the way of social entrepreneurs that are trying to help people. Um, those are the areas that we can highlight and I think we can win young people over. We also should focus on how free enterprise policies enhance economic mobility. And we also need to recognize that the system in part has been rigged in favor of bigger uh, interests, in favor of established companies and of established profession, professions, and that that is not right. But that is not the free enterprise system. That is called crony capitalism. You actually get much more of that in a socialist system because socialism empowers government to make economic decisions. And that means that the larger the government grows, the more power the government has, the more lucrative it becomes for special interests to lobby the government to rule in their favor. So one of the problems we have in the United States today is that the size and scope of government has grown too big and we need to rein it in. And especially the federal government has uh, grown too far in scope. It has assumed responsibilities that rightfully belong in civil society, that belong with the private sector and with state and local governments. And that's particularly true for welfare, because good intentions alone do not suffice to make for good outcomes. And we owe it to ourselves and to those people that we say we care about, that if we truly care about helping poor people, that we make sure that the proposals that we support actually lead to good outcomes and they don't just have good intentions. And that's where unintended consequences come in because many of the welfare programs that we have today actually create permanent dependency and discourage people from working and educating themselves and becoming more productive and earning more money. And I see this every day in my work. I've been traveling across the country talking with employers to identify what the challenges and opportunities were that they face for their workforce. And the number one problem they mention is they're not able to find enough worker, workers. It's not for a lack of opportunity that people are being left behind, but it's because we're telling them that it's better to collect a government check than to go out and make something of yourself. And uh, that is the wrong message to send. That traps people in dependence, which may be for the benefit of a political party who gets its votes that way, because the only way you can get ahead is if you vote for the people who will give you more handouts. But 
that is uh, very short-sighted and ultimately creates a dependent class um, that will always be dependent on politicians. And that's something that we should not be because we can't trust them. They're in it for their own self-interest. Ultimately, members of Congress, no matter how much they say that they're in it for the common good, they're always thinking about the next election. And they're inundated with special interests. So they're not going to make the best decisions because their incentives are also misaligned. So what should we be focused on? We should focus on um, identifying true problems in civil society and barriers that keep people from realizing success and from realizing their full potential. And that includes policies that keep people out of jobs, like occupational licensing. One third of all professions now require occupational licensing, which basically means permission slip from the government for you to do a job. And that is for jobs where that really is not necessary, like becoming a florist or an interior decorator or even a, um, a fortune teller. So we should liberate workers from those unfair restrictions. Um, another big major issue is um, zoning regulations that have made it unaffordable for people to move from rural areas into the towns and cities where economic opportunity awaits them. Um, there are too many rules that prevent people from moving into smaller dwelling units um, that are keeping out tiny houses that, by the way, would also be more environmentally friendly. Um, there's too much nimbyism, not in my backyard. And that's particularly hurting minorities and lower income workers. So we should focus on removing those uh, regulations that just make it unaffordable for people to have homes and to live in areas where there's economic opportunity. And we should highlight successes in civil society, especially the entrepreneurs that solve, solve social problems every day, on the ground, locally, truly helping people to get ahead. And uh, there's many groups that uh, are helping individuals in the prison system, giving them job skills, giving them entrepreneurial and business skills, so that when they come out, they can make something out of themselves and not end up uh, just back in prison after that. And there's been great success, uh, we've seen great success at convincing employers to consider employing people that have a criminal record because just because they made a mistake, they've paid for it, we should be able to welcome them back into society. And civil society is so much more effective at doing this than any job program the federal government runs ever will be. We shouldn't look to government for solutions, but we must look to ourselves. We must look within and to our communities and come together to solve problems um, with each other. We don't all have to be like Steve Jobs, but we can all do our part to identify opportunities, match them up with our own skills and resources to make a difference. And I will, I, I will, um, I'll ask you to join me in that endeavor. Thank you. Apparently this thing turned off. Um, I'll take questions now. Oh, and uh, uh, along the lines of let's not always look to politicians to find solutions, I brought some inspiration. I have uh, five of these books here with me, Real Heroes. This is a book that is a compilation of stories about people with uh, courage and character and conviction who've made a big difference in people's lives. Um, that was compiled by Larry Reed, the former president of the Foundation for Economic Education. And I find these stories very inspiring. Some have made me cry, some have made me proud. Um, 
So if you're asking a question, the first uh, five people to ask a question, um, you'll get one of these books. And uh, you don't have to read the whole things. They're short stories, so they're, they're good for a bathroom break, if you know what I mean. <laughs> want you to line up. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, my name's Angela. Um, I just wanted uh, to ask if you'd speak a little bit to, um, many of us watched the Democrat debates the last couple of nights, um, and two of the main issues we heard a lot was socialism and essentially very open border policies. So if you could speak a little bit to how those um, are connected and how um, we've seen other countries, you can't really have both. Um, yeah. Yes, thank you so much for your question. You want to come up and grab a book? Sure. Yeah, uh, thank you for your question. Yes, so um, why do people want to come to the United States? Because we offer them opportunity. Because the United States is, is one of the few places where anybody can come and if you work hard, you can make it. And we have so many self-made success stories, and we are a country of immigrants. And I'm a first-generation immigrant myself. I came from Germany about 15 years ago, and I love it here. So that's why people come. Sorry, that makes me emotional. But we want people to come to work and to contribute and to become part of our society. And when you have a very generous welfare state, it can draw people for the wrong reasons. And um, that's, not, uh, that's not something that's sustainable because we can only maintain um, our unity as a country if the people who come to join us come because they want to be Americans, not in order to set up their own communities and um, live on, on the US welfare state. And most people don't come for these reasons. But in order for our country to maintain sovereignty, it is important to uh, control the border flows, also to keep the bad guys out, um, and to make sure that the immigration that does happen aligns with the values of the US, uh, the American people. Um, I do think, though, we need to uh, reform our immigration system, because having personally gone through it, it really is broken, it is messed up, and it's not fair. And um, it focuses on the wrong uh, issues, and so, Unfortunately, it's become such a politicized issue that, yes, securing the border is absolutely important, um, but we also need to reform our legal immigration system so people can continue to come here for the right reasons because they want to join America, they want to um, honor the Constitution, and they want to work and serve their fellow Americans and, and make a living here. And you can't have a welfare state with open borders because then everyone will come from everywhere and eventually will run out of money. So one thing that you can do is you can restrict immigrants from becoming eligible for welfare. And the federal government already does that. Uh, you actually have to have a sponsor. You have to be able to carry your own way. Now, of course, it's diff diff different if you're a legitimate refugee that is suffering political 
persecution. But even then, there are legal means for you to come into the country. And the policies we have right now that encourage families to just walk across the border at great risk to their own lives, and especially bringing children because it makes it easier for them to get in, that is really harmful and damaging for those families and those children, and those policies should be fixed. But I don't know that we'll get it done because it's become so partisan that uh, we've lost sight of the human uh, element. And I am also very upset with the Democrats because on the one hand they claim that they care about these people, but on the other hand they're not willing to work uh, with Republicans on common sense proposals that could address the crisis at the border. And it is, it is truly a crisis. Thank you for your question. Hi, uh, my name is Veronica and thank you so much for coming. My question has to do um, with choices for women once they decide to be mothers and to have a family. Um, particularly, what opportunities do you see to work with the free market to allow especially highly educated women you know, to still hold a part-time job or you know, to work just 40 hours a week in professions such as law that often require you know, significant hours typically? So how can we use the free market to open up legitimate choices for these women who would like to work to some degree, but not the you know all in total you know work is your life uh, yes. that often happens in big firms. Yes, um, please grab a book. Thank you for your question. So, um, what is the free market already providing? Actually, if you look at um, part-time workers, uh, people who don't work full-time, the gender wage gap between men and women is actually reversed, meaning women make much more on an hourly basis than men who work part-time. And that is, uh, you can, the reason for that is because you have so many highly educated women that have families that don't want to work full time. And so when they work part time, they actually make more money than men who oftentimes don't have a choice. They want to work full time, but they're not able to get that full time job. And so you see that uh, wage differential. So the way that many women have addressed uh, their own needs of wanting to set their own hours and have flexibility to spend time. Uh, with their children is that we've seen a huge increase in women entrepreneurs in establishing their own businesses. So for example, you could establish a law practice and that focuses on giving people flexibility. Many law practices now too are offering uh, childcare on site, some of the bigger firms, because they recognize the need to, um, to recruit highly talented women and that they have those demands. So the private sector is meeting those needs largely. Now law is one of those professions where the longer hours that you work, the more valuable you are to the firm and the more you get paid. But even that is a trade-off um, that many women are willing to make. They want to stay attached to the labor force, but they don't want to work the 80-hour weeks. And I can understand that. That sounds very tiring to me. Um, and so as long as you make that trade-off voluntarily, there. The pay gap is not a problem because it's just a, um, a recognition that we have different priorities. But then there are other sectors um, where women don't have a pay differential for working fewer hours. And that happens to be in more uh, private health practices, for example, veterinarians and eye doctors. Um, because um, you have a freer market there and you don't have that uh, premium of working super long hours uh, where you see the same um, pay even with different hours put in by men and women. And then also um, pharma pharmacy, for example. Um, the way that pharmacy has been structured is that you just get paid on an hourly basis. So if you work 20 hours, you get that rate for those 20 hours. If you work 40 hours, you make twice that. 
Um, so it's just a reflection of how much you put in. Um, the, um, the way that the private sector primarily solves this problem is just allowing people to have different options and then um, firms wanting to attract uh, highly qualified women offering more flexibility and benefits and we're seeing that across the board now. What we should uh, be careful with is government mandates that establish, for example, paid leave as a requirement. And we should also make it easier for employers to offer women flexibility. And there are some barriers in the way of that that are regulatory barriers. And one of them uh, would be, for example, if the Paycheck Fairness Act became law, it would reduce the ability for employers to grant women flexibility because that flexibility would likely translate into some wage differential that would, be un would not be allowed. So the Kamala Harris proposal, if you're familiar with that one, would actually fine employers if they have a wage differential between men and women, but would not lead to more flexibility for women. What it would lead to is fewer choices and less flexibility because employers would basically have to ask women to work as much as men, whether they want to or not, in order to maintain um, equal pay. And that is something that makes us less free and takes away uh, women's choices to combine uh, family and um, and work and then some women what they do is they stack it so they'll they'll spend some time in the workforce working really hard then they'll take some time out to raise children and then in their 40s or 50s they go back and then we see uh, wage differentials disappear again so it's it, the best thing we can do is have a society that respects those individual choices and that allows a multitude of diverse options to arise that meet the needs of men and women um, in the workplace, and um, we are seeing employers responding to those needs. That's actually all the time we have for questions right now. Albert. Thank you. Let's get another round of applause for Amina. Thank you.